Welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? I don't know. This podcast is not of the body, and we all need to uh, join with Landrow at this point, I think. I don't think we can proceed until we do. Wise words, friend. Wise words. But before we do join with the body, we of course can't possibly tackle such a massive episode by ourselves. So, we have our guest with us. So, say hello, Lenny. Hey, thank you for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. How are you doing this week? Good. Excellent. Well, as we always do when we kick off our podcast, we ask our guests what their history with Star Trek is. So, um, yeah, Lenny, what's Star Trek to you? So, I grew up in, like, a super Trekkie household and remember just having, like, Star Trek memorabilia in every room and going to the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas multiple times <sighs> in my childhood. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, I have like very fond memories of it, but I wasn't like a super expert on the show. It was just something that was kind of on in my house a lot, um, but I was more into like Buffy and stuff like that. Um, but uh, between that and the fact that generally as an adult, I try to watch a lot of um, TV in just in general, um, I've seen a fair amount of Star Trek. I looked it up and I think the only shows I haven't seen any of are Enterprise the animated series, and Prodigy. So I've seen a little bit of everything else. Excellent. And did you have a favorite branch of the franchise? Uh, I think probably Deep Space Nine, but I would need to watch more of all of them to decide. Oh, that's fair enough. <laughs> and, and, and of course, an excellent choice with which nobody could possibly disagree. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much. Well, um, as we always do then, Kev, uh, would you care to give us a summary of this episode? All right. Will do. Um, Sulu and another guy who doesn't matter are exploring this uh, planet uh, Beta 3 and Sulu, when he's been back to the ship, has been sort of brainwashed in a certain way. Uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and a bunch of other people who don't matter go down to the planet and investigate. They soon learn that this planet, it's like everyone there is like brainwashed. Uh, they have a purge-esque festival that they loudly participate in. There's lawgivers rounding people up. Uh, as we'll probably get into the discussion of the episode, this feels like very standard <laughs> sci-fi stuff uh, before it became standard. Um, then they learn about a presence called Landru, who is the sort of overseer of this planet, uh, who appears to them in a hologram. McCoy is brainwashed. Kirk and Spock are captured. Uh, the underground resistance against Landru frees them. They go off and find out that Landru is a computer, and Kirk shouts logic at the computer until it blows up. And that solves everything. Fantastic. Well, you can't really go wrong with shouting logic at something. Um, but yes, let's kick off with our sort of general impressions of the episode. So, yes. Uh, Lenny, how did you find this one? Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good one to have to do. Um, I definitely, uh, immediately, uh, was super into it, loved all the like costumes and it was fun, uh, slowly realizing that this episode is the, uh, purge episode of Rick and Morty. Like I didn't realize <laughs> that episode was so closely just modeled exactly after this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I liked I liked what a sort of like Twilight Zone it was, like really leaning into horror and sort of the concept of the world. 
Okay, excellent. And um, Kev, how did you find it? Yeah, I was loving like the setup of this. Like I was, I was running through all those elements, like, and there's like a purge kind of festival where they all go crazy, yeah. and like especially because the way they talk about it, like the festival is coming soon, the Red Hour, and like the lawmakers and the weird uncanny performance of the extras. Like the setup of this episode is so good. It's like every, it's hitting all the cliches that like really get under my skin and make me really happy. Um, and then. I, and then it also has like so many firsts for Star Trek. I think this is our first Prime Directive reference. I think this is the first time Kirk has gone against a super computer controlling a society and <laughs> shouted at it until it blew up. Like if so, there are like more famous episodes of Star Trek that I knew before going in, like <coughs> Arena, Balance of Terror, Trouble with Tribbles. Like I know these names, I know what the summaries are. I did not know the name or summary of the Return of the Archons until this morning. <laughs> I, I only knew the name because it was on my spreadsheet. But uh, this, if I were to, before watching this show, someone told me, write a cruel parody of Star Trek. <laughs> it would have all these elements in it. And I, I maybe cruel is like a little oversta- overstating it, but it's like, oh, this is everything people associate with the original show. This has all of like, it's like a weird civilization. It's uh, ruled by a computer that Kirk defeats with logic. There's a bunch of like homoerotic undertones. It's like so much of that is just happening. The only thing it's missing is like a watching like alien design that's like really funky and cool. Otherwise, this is like it feels like the original series episode that like anyone could know by heart without even watching the show. And that's I don't know. That's kind of fun to me. I like that like as a piece of television on its own merits there are definitely a lot of failings we'll get into but it's just oh yeah this is where it all started it's very fun to see that origin point for it all yeah i think that's the thing about this episode is it does act for as a sort of urtext for so much of what star trek is going to go on and do and there are so many plots here which are just so familiar yet like you say they're ones that we just haven't come up against this this early on in the show there's a, a real sense, I think, where the show is trying to push itself in new directions. And it's done that in, over a few episodes. So we've had like a legal procedural. Um, we've had a kind of like castaway thing with the Galileo 7 and so on. And this is another range of things that the show is trying to do that it's never really done before. So it's definitely like leaning heavily on that classic kind of sci-fi setup. This is a Star Trek episode, but it could so easily be like a Ray Bradbury short story or something like that. It would take virtually no retooling at all. And it's interesting to see the show kind of get to grips with it. I don't think this is necessarily the most successful iteration of this approach, but it's the first one. So it's fair enough that they don't get everything right first time. And like you said, there are a number of really big significant uh, moments in it. And yeah, the prime direction, uh, prime directive rather, is absolutely one of them. And just so much weight is put in something which isn't emphasized that strongly within the episode itself, but it goes on to be one of the most, you know, defining and important things that Star Trek will ever cover. It's, I think it's an interesting episode, more than a great episode, but when it's interesting, it's really fascinating. It's so crazy that that's the first ever mention of the Prime Directive because, like, immediately Kirk is like, no, in this case, I can kill their god. Like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the very first time we come across the Prime Directive is somebody basically just going, nah, I can't be bothered with it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, 
really sets the text for the Prime Directive in, like, Star Trek to come. Like, every other time I've seen it show up in, like, the new Trek I've watched or the couple of episodes I've caught or just, like, the pop culture perception of Star Trek, it's always, like, people bring up the Prime Directive just so it can be reviewed and never <laughs> to take it seriously. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that's um, a really big swing for this episode, and it's actually the thing I love most about it, and also I think it's the thing that doesn't quite work about it, is that it's very clearly an allegory, um, and it's very clearly a communist allegory. This is the, really the first time that we've come across that in Star Trek. We've had sort of political points which have been made before, um, so maybe something like the way that humanity has moved on from its violent past in the Squire of Gothos, or something like that. With you know our, our, our dagger of the mind, where we talk about like um, prison and rehabilitation and, and, and criminality and all that kind of stuff. We've had brushes against this in the past, but this is the first time we have a whacking great big kind of like anti-communist screed. It's not spoilers going to be the biggest one that we ever come across. But like that description that uh, Spock has of, um, you know, this society, it's, it, it's the, what is it? The, it's the, the, the calm of the machine. It's the, it's the, the idea that this society exists without fear or pain or crime. But what they have sacrificed in order to achieve that is this soul. It's, it's meant to be the soul of the society, which is absent. It's such a blatant kind of communist allegory that where everybody pulls together, everybody knows their place within society, but nobody has any freedom. Nobody has any right of expression. I really admire this episode for just going for it. It doesn't necessarily mean I completely agree with it, but it's a big swing. And I think for the most part, it's really successful in kind of landing what it's trying to say. So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's really the first time we've had that kind of big political allegory. And it pretty much gets away with it. Yeah, and that's really solidified by that final line Kirk has. Oh, I guess in the of an exchange where, like, Spock is saying, mankind has wished for a world as peaceful and secure as one land you provided. And Kirk is like, yeah, we never got it. Just lucky, I guess. And... <laughs> I mean, that just sort of says it all. It's like, we, like, why have peace if it's the sacrifice of individuality? It's such an American perspective, I presume, I assume. But like, like you said, it's an effective allegory. It works to get the message across, even if, you know, I would poke holes in like how the 1960s views communism and its merits. But I mean, as a work of art, it definitely works. Yeah, for most of it, I like when they got into the politics, which I thought was definitely like the weakest part after the fun half. Um, like I was sort of like, this isn't a real dilemma. Like, what are you talking about? There's no actual like peace versus free will thing in politics. And then kind of remembering like, oh, that just exists in like the propaganda idea of what communism is. Like, it took me a while to like remember like oh that's that's what they're going for with this message mm -hmm. it's also weird because like at first it feels very like black mirror with like a computer controlling everyone and you're like what what were they even th like thinking of in 1967 like it feels very weird <laughs> watching something you know is from the 60s being like oh computers are controlling everyone they're just looking at their screens <laughs> yeah I, I find that so fascinating because, yeah, the, the conception of a computer back then was so different. And, 
I don't fully understand, I guess, what they thought the computer would do. I guess no one really knew what a computer was capable of uh, hundreds of years from when they were writing this. Like, it literally, like, yeah, these are calculators right now, but now they can display images and who knows what they can do with if we get artificial intelligence and uh, maybe that leads to brainwashing. <laughs> we can't say. So it is just sort of interesting to, yeah, see like how things have changed in our perception of computers because they wouldn't be like these big black box, bulky boxes anymore. And I think if say Charlie Booker was writing this, he would make it, a little more plausible of like the computer wouldn't just hook people up to the spinny wheel brainwashing machine. There'd be some <laughs> other way to get to that point. But I could see this being like a modern story about how computers would shape society. You could make it just by making, I think more subtle how that happens. I think you could easily see a writer today doing this sort of story. I was just going to say it like felt very in that genre of like, oh, it's because you're on your phone uh, type thing. Yeah. And I was like, that's like true. But how did you know back then? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a degree of prescience to it. Um, I think the big thing which has shifted um, between, say, the 1960s and, say, the 1980s when the next generation comes along is the software revolution. And that's really the thing that tips the difference between the 60s perception of how computers work and the 80s perception or right up till now. And that software revolution is something which really comes into focus with the development of, of home computers when people physically understand what it is that they have at their disposal. Um, it's something which is a, a very direct influence on a whole bunch of sci-fi um, that, that gets developed sort of through the 80s tail end of Doctor Who, but particularly once you start getting into uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and the idea that computers aren't just this thing, this box, this, well, yeah, you can plug stuff in and then magic happens and something comes out the other end. Um, you know, there's 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 a, a logic and structure to the way that computers are used sort of post-software revolution that just doesn't exist in that kind of 1960s version of it. And yet, one of the great things about this script is exactly what you said, Lenny. It's like, it feels prescient. It's this idea, oh, well, like you're staring at your phone all the time or you're, you're, you know, you're just, you know, like the control element is pushed maybe a bit far for a contemporary reading, but not that much further. You know, you've even got like the, like the one guy who, who kind of resists a little bit in, in, in the, uh, in the guest house. Uh, and it's very easy to sort of read him as like the, well, you know, I'm not even on social media sort of guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that would be me. Um, <laughs> I'm not, um, and, you know, like it, it is very easy to slot that in. And I think it's something that the script does deserve real credit for. Uh, I think the next topic I want to talk about is performances. Um, starting with, I think all of our guest players this week do a very good job just locking into like the one mode really asked to them, which is just sort of the blank brainwashing face. Honestly, it's the, it's the, oh, what was his name? Is it Marplon? The name of the um, guy yeah, who is yeah. not, yeah, not brainwashing. It, that's like the weaker performance. I think, I think everyone else is like doing a good job being that the uncanny, um, very like, unsettling blank face and then the people of a regular cast get to do it george takei and uh oh i'm blanking on mccoy's actor's name deforest <laughs> kelly they, i got there uh they do such a good job playing that like weird 
liminal state too. I, I loved that. Yeah, George Takai is really good at that. It's quite quite disconcerting, actually. Um, and yeah, the first Gully does a great job of it as well. It, it, it's, I don't know, the whole brainwashing thing is a bit, I don't know. One, I, I, I know that we mentioned this a little bit just before we started recording, but I'll bring it up now. Like, once they get to that cell, like, that's game over for this episode for me. Like, I think the first half is really fascinating, and then um, the second half feels kind of contrived. And a lot of that kind of like hanging about, waiting for stuff to happen in the second half. It's like, again, like the first Kelly does a really good job of like talking slowly and doing the whole peace friend, we are of the body routine. But in the end, it's like, can we get out of first gear now, please? Because we'd quite like something to happen. And that like the, 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 the uh, fifth columnist or the spy who's really working the, the magic brainwashing machine. Um, also kind of feels a bit contrived. Um, but I mean, they're all good performances. It, it's, I feel it's the script is letting the performances down a little bit. Um, I'm quite glad that we only have a very limited amount of uh, William Shatner doing um, kind of blank acting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like, again, in that first half of the episode, I really like Shatner's performance and the anger he feels when he goes into the, like the guest house and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he's, He's quite undaunted by the whole prospect. I think he does a good job of bringing Kirk across. Um, oh, yeah. Um, if I could just pop yeah. up that really quick. Like, when he's, like, testing the waters and when they first landed and, like, just trying to, like, play along but also not lie, like, he's just like, yeah, we're in town. What's up? Like, just, like, <laughs> yeah. he knows something is off but he's not going to overplay his hand. I love him doing that. I think that is yeah. so smart and such a good decision. But you were, you were saying, JG, about like how he starts off really strong. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and I, I just I feel so much of it fades away towards the end of the episode. And I think part of the problem is is that a lot of it doesn't give the, the actors that much to get their teeth into. Like, for example, that whole thing with McCoy kind of sitting around going, you know, we, you're not of the body or whatever. It's kind of... I don't know. It's I don't think it's making the best use of DeForest Kelly's acting skills. Yeah. Even though I think he's really good in the first half of the episode. And one of the fascinating things about the first half of the episode is that he has almost no lines. He's just present. But he's so present. He just kind of pulls focus even when he's not being given things to say. And then the second half, he's kind of just, just sitting about the place with two other kind of random extras or whatever. It, 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 I, I don't know. I feel a lot of the the really good, really strong performances are undermined by a lot of the script in that second half. The whole conceit of the brainwashing is kind of a double-edged sword, where it's very effectively creepy for a moment to see. And I know he's faking it in this scene, but to see William Shatner like do the blank face, like, "Oh no, he has so much life in him, and now it's all gone." And then you don't want to see more of it because William Shatner is such like a big bombastic performer. You don't want to see him play lifeless <laughs> and creepy. So yeah, like it works so well for Decay and Kelly too, but it's also like limiting them as well at the same time. It's an effective jolt, but it doesn't lend itself to this very compelling performance in the long run, which is probably why this episode is so guest star heavy. There's so many of them because it's only really works effective if you see a lot of people doing the blank face monotone, just having one person guide you through, which it sort of becomes when it's just Marplon, Spock, and Kirk. Uh, it doesn't work as well. 
Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a limiting factor, and I think part of the part of the problem is is that. All right, here's a question for for both of you. The red hour. Why? Like, 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 there's literally yeah. no explanation for it in the episode. I mean, it's effective as a piece of drama. You know, you have this very peaceful, calm society. Suddenly everything goes crazy, and then maybe also a woman's rape because it's 1967. I don't know. It's not really clear. Um, and then everything goes back to being peaceful again. But we never actually get any kind of explanation for it other than, well, it's an effective piece of drama. There's no, there's no scripted reason. We don't get an explanation for it. I mean, we can sort of, I guess, fan mic around it and sort of say, well, you know, oh, it, it, you know, if they're controlled all the time, this is their like one release and then, and then Landry can take control again. But it's never actually explained within the body of the episode. That's a terrible way of putting it, isn't it? It's not explained within the body <laughs> of the episode. Um, and I also kind of feel that that's a bit of a weakness of this episode because it, it we need something more than, oh, well, it just gives everybody an excuse to sort of scream a lot and wave their arms in the air. Yeah, I agree. It felt like sort of two half ideas like smushed to get together. That mm. could have probably been full episodes because, yeah, I like really wanted, I really liked how much it felt like a horror show in the beginning. And I could have watched like a whole episode of Por of The Purge. Um, and then, yeah, by the end, when you find out the computer can control them, I'm sort of like, well, if he just can control them and make them peaceful, then why do they need like a festival as an outlet for their anger? Like that just, it weirdly seems like the computer just like having fun with it, which I guess is kind of <laughs> cool that the, the computer's a freak. But uh, yeah, I don't think they like threaded it together very well. Yeah. All the talk about the festival and the red hour and then the people going crazy, like all that hooked me so hard early in. Mm. And then, yeah, I didn't really think, about oh yeah they never explained it it's I, a lot of elements that sort of like that where they have such good hooks in and like the lawgivers are so cool with their brown cloaks and the name lawgivers and the weird voices they do that's also never explained they just do that it's very strange and um yeah I, you just sort of wish there's more substance behind all this like great flash they have on the surface mm-hmm well, yeah, absolutely. And the lawgivers are a really good example of that, actually, I think, because the idea that they are, they are just this very kind of slow moving, right? They never run, they never, you know, they just turn up and they are this kind of force. Um, this, I mean, if you really want to go down kind of like the totalitarian or Soviet kind of thing, you could say like they're the KGB or the Stasi or whatever, you know, like imposing this kind of rationality, whether people want it or not. But just like the, like, their guns are just like hollow tubes and like nobody can really explain it. Like that's quite effective. That's a pretty creepy, pretty kind of weird sort of thing for an episode like this to have. It's, it's really effective. And yet in the end, eh, it's a computer. It's just like a box in a room that, that Kirk can, can, can defeat with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of X, Y, Z logic. It's just, I don't know. There's so much in this which I have such admiration for, and yet, I don't know, it just never quite coheres. Yeah, and then back to the festival and such. I am very charmed by how it was very PG-level purge, how people were, like, <laughs> yeah. grabbing each other and whacking each other and breaking stuff. But, like, like, you could tell if they had the budget and the leeway to do this on network television, there'd be a much more disturbing stuff going on, but they had to do what they could. 
Yeah, the um, networks were really, really careful about what could be shown during those scenes. They, they, they were really under a microscope as to what they could and couldn't get away with or what they could imply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the element with the daughter is, like, so dark and interesting. And, like, the fact that at first you think her father goes along with it because he's part of the society, and then you find out it's because he's a rebel and has to, like, blend in and worry anything he do will make him identified as a rebel and then there's the question of like well is that any different like either way you're still uh going along with this happening to your daughter like that is like so interesting but also like all like very minimal subtext and you're like i don't know what actually happened to her like maybe a man on the street just like shook her lightly yeah it's it, it, it's it's a little bit undermining i think and and but you know they're, they're doing their best with what they can get away with in 1967 i do obviously understand that but at the same time it's hard to convey the horror and the trauma that this red hour is supposed to impose when all you get is aha run away <laughs> yeah it's just you just really wish they could go farther, though. I'm also wary of like, especially writers in the '60s. Maybe this is kind of a bad logic experiment because obviously writers in the '60s would not be able to go farther given the constraints. But like, what those kind of people would do to show, oh, we're being extreme and edgy, and that also like sets me on edge a bit. <laughs> what their idea of that would be. Um, but yeah, it is just. You still need some more substance here for me to actually understand what's going on and why it's so bad that these people are just like laughing and breaking stuff. Um, and then, like, I guess that's why the sort of very tranquil stuff is more effective when they're all locked in vacant stairs, because that at least you have like they can be that they can lean into because it's not anything objectionable happening on screen, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that felt like what most of the episode was like later yeah. they talk about like the, the piece of the planet and you're like, yeah, but they also have like a night of whatever is going on there with maybe something horrible happened to that daughter. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I, I really like the fact that Star Trek, particularly the classic series is very, um, doubtful when it comes to utopias or paradises or whatever the idea that there's always a a price to be paid or there's a cost to having this perfect society um and that you can't you can't shortcut your way to perfection or you can't shortcut your way to improving society you need to um i suppose improve it through a sort of iterative process that's really what kirk is arguing when he says um you know that freedom isn't a gift it's something that you need to take it's something you need to earn i like I like that questioning idea. It's it's a little crudely expressed, I think, in this episode. And again, with such a heavy-handed kind of Soviet or, or uh, totalitarian kind of parable going on. It, I mean, what what other side is Star Trek going to take? But I, I do like the fact that it's always questioning this idea of uh, perfection. It's always questioning this idea of an ideal society because... Ultimately, an ideal society isn't something which can be produced by anything other than putting in the work. And and the idea of a, a computer being able to kind of replicate that in some way is, is an anathema to everything that kind of Kirk represents, everything that he kind of stands for. So again, I think there are interesting ideas at play here. And, and we're going to see a lot more of these ideas expressed as, as we sort of move forward through the series. But it is interesting to see them sort of put out really into the open for the first time here and 
if there is a, a logical sharp falling when it comes to this lack of explanation for the purge or lack of explanation for, you know, other elements of the script, like you can, you can feel that they're questing towards finding something significant to say. So if they don't quite get it right here, I'm really glad to see the show at least moving in that kind of direction. And I think it's the significant fact that we keep calling it The Purge when this <laughs> predates the movie The Purge by, like, almost 50 years. Yeah. Like, truly, I think, like, you can almost forgive a lot of these sins because no one, I mean, maybe it's a little facetious to say no one knew how to make TV back then. Because obviously you can go back even farther than this and find great episodes of The Twilight Zone or I Love Lucy or whatever. Um, but I guess it was just less standard. These tropes are less codified. Um, these, the idea of the computer controlling the society, maybe there's some sci-fi short story I don't know about which did this first, but it feels like it's breaking new ground in the ni- in the late 60s in a way where it will be imitated and improved upon later. And I don't know. I think that's kind of a beautiful thing of like history like this is, like, I'm, obviously it can swing too far in the other direction where it's like, well, no good art was made until like 1990, whatever, which is blatantly false. But I also think there is truth to the idea that the, there's a lot of media from earlier in our history that just didn't, without the lack of medium history and experience, couldn't quite figure out how it was working and was still figuring out the new ideas and couldn't refine them as sharp as like you would hope a script from now could. Um, I mean, maybe the year 2023 is like not the best for television right now compared to maybe like a few years ago, but long arc of history. That's how I feel sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple ways to look at it. You can look at it as like this idea is like underdeveloped and we don't get enough of like what, uh, that festival is um but then that's like also kind of almost a cool thing that it's like oh they're like second act that they threw in to make the episode a little longer we now know could be like seven horror movies yeah absolutely and you know that the whole process of production when it comes to television is that generally speaking things tend towards improvement so the kind of drama that you could produce in 1967 isn't the same kind of drama that you produce in, in 2023. Um, and that's fine. That doesn't devalue the quality of drama from the 60s. Neither does it necessarily improve the quality of drama from the 21st century. But the method of production and the method of writing television is something which is, is generally iterative and improves over time. So if you take a show like Star Trek, if you take classic Trek and an episode like this, which is trying very hard to kind of have like a moral point of view. It's trying very hard to have a, a political point of view. And I do think this is an extremely political episode. It's, it's absolutely one of the things I would commend it for. But you can't hold it responsible for not being an episode of Breaking Bad or Better Call right. Saul <laughs> or something like that. Of course it isn't. That kind of moral complexity, that kind of um that kind of way of expressing things simply doesn't exist in 1967 but that's not a fault of something you have to you have to look at it within its context you know the context is this is the show which is trying very hard to wrestle with 
um, yeah, communist parable, the idea of uh, expressions of freedom. We're, you know, 10 years on from McCarthy at this point. Um, so, you know, we've had that whole thing go on in America. But the shows that are contemporaneous with Star Trek are things like Lost in Space or Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or, you know, those kind of shows. They couldn't in a million years attempt the kind of complexity that Return of the Archons is going for. If it's not successful completely in what it's trying to do, that's fine. But compared to the other media that existed in 1967, it's an absolute triumph. I always find it interesting to remember that like until pretty recently, um, people were writing from the perspective of audiences like watching it once and never again. Yeah. So like in that context, it's like, well, why bother with the festival? Oh, because it's like a great cut to commercial and like, I think that's kind of cool that it's like they wanted that one moment in 1967 to be really exciting more so than the like overall logic of the episode holding up. The whole structure of TV up until like the last couple decades was we need something dramatic every five minutes so people don't turn away when a commercial starts. And that is just, it's just how it was. And sometimes that leads to some like incredible TV writing. Like, I mean, the first thing that came to mind is Lost, uh, which was so good at its like cliffhangers usually, and but you could also just look in the same show. Like Balance of Terror has so many great cliffhanger moments within it, and that's like a perfect episode of television because it's so structured by those act breaks and everything. Um, and yeah, this like sometimes you see the seams where it's like things get thrown without explanation because they need a dramatic cut to commercial break and they don't have a great resolution to that later on. But it still, I think, gives it a drive and like an intrigue that a lot of shows that are 10-hour movies uploaded to Netflix all in one day just sort of forget to keep people's attention like that. Yeah, like I would always want to lean more towards episodes like this one where it's like there's maybe too many ideas like that they're all trying to thread together as opposed to not enough going on in your episode. What I, what I think is interesting about this episode as well is this idea that, um, that the Enterprise can turn up and that they are essentially, I hesitate to say acting as policemen, maybe that's a little too heavy-handed for this episode because officially they're supposed to be investigating the disappearance of this ship. Um, but they kind of turn up and they sort of impose themselves upon this society. And we understand it from the kind of... Um, well, I've talked a few times now about the Soviet allegory, which is fine. That's fair enough. That's very clearly um, what Spock's uh, you know, referring to when he talks about you know the, 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 the quiet of the factory or the peace of the factory or whatever. But we're also getting into a period of time where Vietnam is a thing. And that's also going to provide a very significant lens through which Star Trek can be viewed. So the idea of the Enterprise simply turning up and imposing something on a society is going to start taking on some very different kind of cadences once sort of Vietnam really gets up and running. And we are getting into that period of time now. Now, that's something which is certainly going to come back um, again and again as we move through the series. But I think it's just, I don't want to make too big a deal of it at this point in Star Trek's history, but I think it's something that we do need to keep in the back of our minds. This idea that, you know, the Nazis had been defeated in 1945, the idea that America was this kind of dominant superpower, really at this point, um, if not quite the only superpower with the USSR, certainly the, 
the biggest one, the strongest one. We've had the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's been resolved. We've had JFK, that's been dealt with. And America is very, very much in the ascendancy. But Vietnam is about to change all of that. And the history that Vietnam has uh, and the influence it has on the way that Star Trek will perceive these kind of very unqualified, we can just turn up and do something episodes is going to be really significant going forward. Yeah, I was just going to say through that lens, there's sort of like a darkness to this episode that I hadn't like necessarily considered. I found the philosophy more sort of like generic and underbaked, but like uh, thinking about it more, it is, you definitely see this very like American idea of them being like, oh no, it's fine for us to come in and like fuck everything up because they need freedom. <laughs> and like, uh, yeah, I definitely like see that tone to it now that you're pointing it out. And I'm kind of like, uh. Yeah. It's interesting because like, I don't, I'm hesitant to agree with the politics in this episode. Also hesitant to endorse uh, Soviet communism. <laughs> you know, it's a little, uh, but like the 60s American view of communism was always felt a little like, I mean, with the, the Red Scare and the Blacklist and things like that always was a little corny at best, harmful at worst. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I like I can't deny like, like you're, you're saying, JG, it's just so good at embodying and delivering that message. I just, uh, like, it, it's, the, it gives it steps of drive. Like, I think this contrasts to, I think the last two episodes we covered tomorrow's yesterday in Court Martial, which we didn't have much to say on. Uh, part of that is my apologies. I was bone tired during both of those recordings. But also, those are episodes with also great ideas and also, um, like, sort of similar in quality to this episode where great ideas that didn't follow through, but they also don't really have much driving them beyond just needing to fill another week and what's a good, interesting plot we can come up with. This actually has probably baked into the story, because it's a Gene Roddenberry story originally, just an idea it wants to present. And that makes it infinitely more interesting. Oh, no, I completely agree. And I think that is part of why I find the second half of this episode so frustrating, is because it stops having interesting ideas, and it yeah. just starts being about people sitting about in a cell, and then eventually there's a computer we can blow up apparently. Um, and that's kind of frustrating because even though I don't think every idea lands here, I just think there's such a such a weight to the idea that the episode is trying to squeeze in in the first half. It, it can't help be compelling. And then it's just like a bunch of people sitting about and they're not really discussing anything which is of great significance and it's not really helping to move the plot forward. We have a good 10 minutes where we go, so those people are taken out the door. Yeah, what happens to them? They're brainwashed. Okay, so those people are taken out the door. Yeah, what happens to them? They're brainwashed. And that's just like 10 minutes of screen time. It's so yeah. boring. And then even when we get to the super secret brainwave place thing, that that, that set, by the way, is weird. That It's got that, that one thing where the control chamber swings around that looks like it costs a lot of money, but it's barely noticeable on screen. Anyway, sorry, small sidebar. Um, and it's just, it kind of, I don't know. We get we get the you mentioned it before, Kev. We, we get that 
final exchange between Kirk and Spock about how they managed to avoid having this perfect society. But in between that and then turning up in the cell, we don't really get any more interesting ideas. We don't really get any more philosophical debates. We don't really get any more politics. We don't really get any more anything. And that's why I feel this episode is really kind of frustrating and kind of falls short of its ambition. I like the ambition that it has. I just wish it had been able to incorporate more of it into that second half to really kind of keep the drive and momentum going. I was going to tie back into Tomorrow is Yesterday, another episode that ends, that starts with interesting ideas and then ends with Kirk getting captured and breaking out of cells in a very rote fashion. It just feels like that was a mode they were kind of stuck in at this point. Yeah, I feel like for me, it didn't deflate as early as it did for you. To me, I was pretty into it um, until it started being about like beating a computer with facts and logic. I like (laughs) the exact moment the energy left for me was like, there's a moment when I thought, Kirk was going to just absolutely fuck up their God with a baseball bat. And I was so into that. I was like, yes, it should be resolved with Kirk being like, I am going to smash up their God with this baseball bat. And then instead it being about logic problems. I was like, oh, okay. The weird thing about the logic problem is that it's Kirk, not Spock. Yeah. That's like, if anybody's going to surely defeat a computer via logic, surely... Surely it should be Spock, right? In general, in this episode, I was really surprised by how much, like, Spock's role was being like, oh, wow, that's really smart, Kirk. How did you think of that? Like, it really surprised me. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and also, Kirk's logic issue is, like, it's not even that clever. Like, I could forgive it if it was, like, a clever solution. Like, and I come to this with, like, Doctor Who episodes as well. Doctor Who has showed that, like, even more than Star Trek, like, really likes to resolve its conflicts with, when it can, um, more, like, thinky solutions, for lack of a better term, than just having a main character go in guns a-blazing. But, like, both shows kind of struggle when their thinky solution is not that interesting or compelling. And in this, it's just Kirk shot a computer, actually, you're evil. And that's not... <laughs> A computer would outthink that. You, it, it's pretty easy to navigate around. He needs yeah, like really, evidence of why he's evil. It really didn't feel like someone outsmarting a computer. Like the conversation felt like a conversation that like a kid and his mom would have. I was like, Kurt's right. just being annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's very. Uh, no, I'm not. You are. It's so. Yeah. <laughs> I just wish that it was like a truly clever solution and not just like, like I said, just shouting at the computer. Because, like, the cle- if there was a clever way he diffused it with logic, which again would make more sense for Spock to do, anyways, that would give it a little more juice. And maybe also it's a time to tie in thematically resonant <laughs> parts of this episode together and present it to the computer in a nice bow. Um, but no, he just kind of yells at it and it gives up. It's very odd. Yeah, it's a pretty unsatisfactory conclusion and that is unfortunate. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, you could come up with a more clever logic problem, but ultimately it's, it's kind of the episode writes itself into a corner. Like what else are you going to do? There's only two solutions. Either you leave everybody as they are, or you blow up the computer. There isn't. There isn't really a third way. It's one of those episodes where you do wonder, like for all Kirk's speech at the end about how lucky we are that we avoided this, like, is the society going to be better because they destroyed Landry? I, yeah, 
probably in terms of freedom, but it's, I don't know. It, there's a lot of questions which I think are raised by the episode that don't quite get answered by the time the conclusion rolls around as well. And I'm not convinced that's because we're supposed to, as an audience, be left with this thought about, oh, well, maybe they would be better off if they were free, or maybe they would be better off if they were still being controlled because there's no violence except for when there sometimes is. Um, you know, it, it's... I don't know. It feels a little inconclusive, but when it comes to when it comes to destroying the computer, like yeah, that's the only option that's available. So either you have to have like Kirk or Spock or whoever have some kind of logic bomb that does that, or Scotty's going to fire some phasers at it, or I don't know, maybe a maybe a dog's going to pee on it or something and it just electrocutes <laughs> itself. I mean, it doesn't really matter what the end story is. There, that's really the only way this episode is ever going to stop. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that. This is one of the stories Lower Decks revisits uh, whenever they remember what the original pitch of that show is, which is fine. They don't forget it frequently. It's a good show otherwise. <laughs> but uh, this is one of the second contacts they do is checking up on Beta 3 again, and they've rebuilt Landru and want to start doing Red Hours again. And it's a funny gag, for sure, but also just kind of underlines how, yeah, kind of weak this ending is, and we just have to believe that they will, well, they'll write themselves, and without any follow-up it's yeah it's just very abrupt especially because like if you look at the wikipedia summary of this article and like the last like two paragraphs of a four paragraph summary all take place in the last 10 minutes basically <laughs> like it is a lot of setup and like you said jg like a lot of slowdown of like explaining the brainwashing stuff followed by a lot of quick uh oh the computer's causing it uh let's yell at it uh it's blown up uh we're done and yeah, it's it doesn't leave itself time for the fallout. It spent so much time with a setup. I think as we're wrapping up, the last fun fact I have is uh, Sid Haig, who like got a lot of prominence later in life as like this guy who would show up, like in like Tarantino movies and um, yeah. Rob Zombie movies, just as like a guy who pops in because he was like a big TV actor around this time, and those directors remember him. But yeah, he's just a well-known grindhouse guy, and he shows up as one of the lawgivers in one of those brown robes, which is just, like, a fun fact. Like, not a very memorable performance, unfortunately, but, you know, it's fun that he popped in here. And I think that means we are ready to give episode ratings. Yes, I think you're probably right. So, um, well, I never get to go first, so I'm going to go first this time, right? Because, why, why not? I'm the one that's talking. Um, I think I'm going to give this um, six and a half out of ten. I think there's an interesting weight of ideas here. I don't think they're all necessarily clearly expressed, but I think it does generally just tip over into uh, being good rather than not. So yeah, I'm going to give this a six and a half, I think. Lenny, what would you like to give it? Um, I'll give it a seven out of ten. This was... And one that when I first watched it, I was super excited about. It sucked me in so hard with like the production and costumes and the sort of tone of it early on. But like the more I think about it and we talk about it, I can see how it didn't totally like deliver on that setup. Um, but I thought it was a very a fun episode that definitely made me want to watch a lot more original series. So I'll give it a seven. 
Yeah, I'm going with seven as well. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, JG, that uh, last look at our spreadsheet. Last three episodes from ours yesterday, Court Martial and this have all been sevens for me, six and a halfs by you. And because I don't give half points, it might as well be the same. All <laughs> uh, right, and, and uh, I wouldn't call it a full-on rut, but definitely a groove here with the show. Um, I, 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 yeah. I just mild spoiler i can promise you that's not going to be the case in the next episode uh yeah i i think i know spacey's reputation and it's uh, gonna dip a bit and then some good ones coming up um but yeah i think overall like you've we've all said it pretty well it's some great ideas it hooks you early on and then just can't close the deal which is unfortunate because we've seen star trek be able to quote unquote close the deal before we've had some great episodes already in this run so we know it can be better, and we can hold it to that standard, I guess. Well, absolutely. And, you know, we are getting towards the end of the first season now, so I suppose a certain amount of fatigue is, is inevitable. But, yeah, no, that's, that's entirely fair. And I think probably with that, we can wrap our discussion of this episode and move on to our recommendations. So, uh, Lenny, what would you like to recommend for us? Um, okay, this isn't my official recommendation, but... I do want to say, obviously, anyone who hasn't seen it should watch the Rick and Morty episode, Look Who's Purging Now, right after this one, because uh, it's a really fun comparison. Um, but uh, I'll make my recommendation the one-season TV show, The Middleman, which I just rewatched <gasps> all of over the past couple days. Oh, my God, so I'm in love good. with you. I love The Middleman. <laughs> Sorry, do, do, do carry on. <laughs> please please explain why it's so unutterably brilliant. Oh, um, It's sort of like... If Buffy was like just the silliest episodes, but like not in a bad way, um, it's a really quick watch. And yeah, every episode just has like a really strong concept and uh, the the characters are just funny and delightful. I couldn't agree more. What a brilliant recommendation. I, 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 you just, you've made my day night. I'm incredibly <laughs> happy. Thank you for that. Um, Kev, what would you like to recommend? Uh, before I get to that, I... I feel like you have to do penance. I will watch The Middleman someday, hopefully. It's been on my radar pretty much since it came out. Like, <laughs> I, I started becoming, like, a regular TV watcher around, like, 2008, 2009, and I just missed that one. And I've been hearing since I've been, like, from posting on AV Club days onward, like, <laughs> known it was a great show. <laughs> so i got to give it a shot. But, um, yeah, what I am going to plug is a... 2014 or 15 i think 2014 might be the festival date anyways a film from recent years called the guest directed by adam wingard sort of his calling card film before he then did like weird franchise stuff like godzilla versus kong (laughs) but um this is a very like down and dirty thriller movie starring dan stevens as a guy who shows up at a house and says hey i knew your brother we served in the army together can i crash here and he's so nice and comforting and welcoming and oh why wouldn't we let him in and see what he's up to and like help him out and then things slowly unravel from there i don't want to specify how or what happens it's such a don't know what you're getting into until you get into it movie um but it dan stevens is the lead is incredible and not an actor i've usually had on my radar like i'd never watched out now but i knew he was on there and maybe good on there He's been in other movies that haven't really left an impression with me. His performance in The Guest is astounding. He is amazing. And I think Wingard gets the tone really well. 
and his screenwriter as well, they just fully understand, like, they're going for, like, a bit of camp, a bit of fun, while also, like, taking things, like, very, like, seriously. I think it would fit in well now in the day of age of, like, four John Wick movies being very successful, and, like, recently movies like Megan and Cocaine Bear, which all seem to get, like, this mix of, like, horror and comedy and thriller and we don't have to take this so seriously but we can deliver enough of the goods that's not like an actual parody it really does feel like it came out just a few years too early but feels it hits so well and then the last thing i want to say is like the reason i watched it is because uh lance reddick the amazing lance reddick passed recently and like one of my favorite actors, I was truly distraught that whole day after the news broke. And this was recommended to me as like a film I hadn't seen and the role he's really good in. And in typical Lance Reddick fashion, he's only in like a small slice of the movie. He was never like a leading man, unfortunately, because he was so good, like in everything, in everything he was so good. But in The Guest just like proves that. Like he's one of those, it really shows you what kind of career he has in a microcosm where even though he's only in like these five scenes, he commands it during those five scenes and leaves such an impact on the movie. So yeah, uh, check out The Guest and also check out anything Lance Reddick has done. Look him up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you weren't already like memorializing him with everyone else on that day, definitely look up his resume because he, he's a consistently, he was a consistently incre- incredible performer. I mean, it goes without saying that I'm going to uh, agree with you as far as Lance Reddick is concerned. Um, I'm going to give Fringe a shout out because Fringe yeah. is just one of those shows that I utterly adore, and it's exactly what you said, Kev. It's you know, like he's he's uh, like fourth or fifth stringer in that show, but like the second he's on string uh, on screen, sorry, um, you just he just commands everything. He's brilliant in that show, and it's a show I will never ever get tired of uh, evangelizing about but uh but yeah um that's not my recommendation this week so my recommendation this week is a book from um a couple of decades ago actually um called fraud uh by david rakoff it's a collection of essays um which is very i mean i guess i suppose if you wanted a point of comparison it's maybe a bit similar to sort of like uh david sedaris or chuck klosterman or, or you know writers like that uh where they just you know write articles which are maybe five, 10, 15 pages long, and they just become incredibly engrossing. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're silly, sometimes they're deeply personal or revealing, but it's just such a lovely collection of works and it's incredibly easy to get drawn into this world. I guess uh, I, I, the name might be familiar if you listen to like This American Life or whatever, he's, he's done so much uh, there, um, but he's, he's just a really incredibly enjoyable writer and that it's one of those uh books where you just get so much pleasure from how skilled a writer is how easily they play with language how easily they play with vocabulary it's it's just a lovely little read it's it's a perfect i'm going to read something in the bath sort of book it's not something which is necessarily going to command your full attention forever and a day but it's just a it's a great collection of essays it's a lovely piece of work it covers his life in in weirdly personal detail and yet it's also like big macro level stuff as well it's just it's just an absolutely glorious little read so yeah that's uh fraud by david Rafa. that's what i'm going to recommend this week fantastic well i think probably in that case we can uh move towards um plugs so uh lenny how would you like to plug yeah so i have i host uh two podcasts 
Chapter Surfing is a podcast about TV shows and the books that they're based on. You can look up the episode with Kev we did on The Rings of Power. And yeah. then House of House, if you like episode-by-episode episode rewatch podcasts, that's my podcast where we talk about House MD. I, I really hope people like episode-by-episode episode recaps if they're <laughs> listening to this podcast, because otherwise we've got a problem on our hands. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and of course, uh, we have to say thank you very much for joining us in this episode. It's been absolutely lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Um, Kev, would you like to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. We are on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou. I am on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And the other podcast I frequently guest on is Total Massacre at Total underscore mass underscore pod. I just did an episode on Starship Troopers. Great movie. I love it so much. Um, JG's can be found at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. That's where his other writings are. His other podcast is Beatles Stuffology where he and Andrew Deacon go through the Beatles song by song. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And therefore, we can leave the turn of the Archons there. Next episode, oh, I'm so sorry, it's Space Seed, and there's just nothing we can do about that. But until then, keep listening. Keep listening.